In this episode, I have a special guest for you. As I often do, I like to go out into the field and bring in experts on my show. And I'm talking top-notch experts. And today I have another expert for you in the field of ADHD. I'd like to introduce you, and he needs no introduction by any means, Dr. Russell Barkley. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. In his semi-retirement, he continues to lecture widely and develop continuing education courses for professionals on ADHD and related disorders, as well as consult on research projects, edit the ADHD report, and write books, reviews, and research articles. Dr. Barkley is a clinical scientist, educator, and practitioner who has published 27 books, rating scales, and clinical manuals numbering more than 43 editions. Dr. Barkley has presented more than 800 invited lectures in more than 30 countries and appeared on nationally televised shows such as 60 Minutes, The Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS Sunday Morning, CNN, and many others. And you can find more information about him on his website, russellbarkley.org, which is a wealth of knowledge in itself, that website. So my friends, without further ado, in this conversation with Dr. Barkley, I am going to be reviewing the second edition of his book titled, Taking Charge of Adult ADHD, Proven Strategies to Succeed at Work, at Home, and in Relationships. Be sure to listen to the entire episode. I have pulled out some of the best nuggets of his book, and I'm really having a conversation, a candid conversation about some of the topics that are discussed in his book. We talk about medication, recent studies, and much, much more. So without further ado, this is my conversation and an honor to be speaking with Dr. Russell Barkley. Welcome to Proudly ADHD at work and in business. I am your host, Coach Kathy Rashidian, and I help professionals like you understand the science behind your unique brain so you can unlock that inner genius. Ready to transform your ADHD into your best asset? Keep listening. Welcome to another episode with Coach Kathy. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of having Dr. Russell Barkley. Drum roll, please. And I want to give you a little bit of a context into this. Thank you, doctor. When I got my diagnosis, thank you. When I got my diagnosis in my early 40s, I remember I I reached out to a friend and I said, I got diagnosed with ADHD. And she's like, welcome to the club. I'm like, oh, I didn't know there was a club. Okay, I'm in it now. (laughs) And then she, I said, where do I even begin? There's so much information. And one of the names she mentioned was Russell Barkley. She said, you Google him, you study him, you study all his material. So for the first while, yeah, I was on YouTube a lot with watching all of your lectures. And then I purchased the book and I'm like, okay, the book is too big. Then I purchased the oh. audiobook to go with it. <laughs> so, so it's been a, it's, I feel like I know you, even though this is the first time I'm meeting you, doctor. So thank you. <laughs> well, you probably do. And you put my kids through college. Thank you. <laughs> of course. No, I'm and kidding. It's, but it's honestly, thank you for purchasing the book. Yeah, of course. And all that you've done over the years 
you are truly a gift to this community and I love uh -huh. having your perspective and you know I've had Dr. Hallowell on the show as well and and I love the the different perspectives that each expert brings on and different views yeah. and I, I really believe in that when it comes to ADHD it's not a you know one size fits all as you talk about in your book and so for right. today what I love to talk about is the new edition of Taking ah. Charge of Adult ADHD, second edition. So it's it's right. out in the market and I have many questions. So thank okay. you. Doctor. Oh, thank it, it's a pleasure. And thank you. I, I appreciate you even mentioning the book. But yeah, I, I'm glad it's out. It was one of my pandemic projects and uh, was to bring that as up to date as we could based on thousands of research studies have been done since the last edition and trying to roll all of that into the new edition that, that is anything clinically relevant was was very important so thank you absolutely so let's get into that let's get into the research and evidence yeah. i want to quote on the beginning of the book there's a sentence that says and i want to read this out so that i do justice to it Evidence from more than 100,000 scientific articles and books on adult ADHD since the last edition of this book from 2020. This is from an expert mm -hmm. that you have in, in on one of your pages. And essentially the idea that this is not just an American made up thing, because that's one of the things no. that it says. So talk to me about that research. What's, what's the recent find? Sure. There's an awful lot going on in the field, uh, so much so I review all the articles published in the journals every week. Uh, there's at least 35 to 50 new research papers. A lot of it's replication, but there's always something that's pushing the envelope and expanding our knowledge and, uh, and awareness. And it goes in, in multiple directions. I mean, obviously there's a great deal of activity going on in genetics, molecular genetics, huge studies of hundreds of thousands of people in genome-wide studies, identifying genes, linking genes up with brain networks. And, you know, what does that have to say about, you know, ADHD in the brain and how these networks are functioning. On top of that, of course, is the new research on newer medications for ADHD. And then, of course, in the area that has really excited me over the last two years has been changing the view of ADHD from a mental health difficulty to a public health problem because of all of the links between ADHD, particularly in adults, and health outcomes. And as you know, from the new edition, one of the major expansions in the new edition is the subject of health and wellness and all of the risks that people need to be aware of if they're not having their ADHD managed properly. So we, we could spend a few minutes on that, but certainly that to me has been a very exciting development this last year or so, is looking at the connection between ADHD and obesity, women with ADHD and eating disorders like bulimia, the role of estrogen and progesterone balance in female hormones and its impact on women's ADHD symptoms across the lifespan, not just during their monthly cycle, but and, and learning more about that. And then the link between ADHD and diabetes, ADHD and, you know, early mortality from accidental injury and suicide. I mean, it just goes on and on and on these risks that are not really discussed uh, a great deal within the mental health community, if at all, and almost never discussed within primary care. And so one of the things I, along with Chad and others, have been trying to do this last year or so is to try to make uh, primary care clinicians and their associations 
aware that they're seeing a lot of adult ADHD. They're just not recognizing it as such. Mm. And it's going to interfere with the care they try to provide people who come in with, you know, alcohol problems, smoking problems, weight control problems, marital difficulties, you know, as well as, as I mentioned, diabetes and other things. So, you know, the, the list just goes on endlessly. I mean, just to summarize how sobering it is, children with ADHD are twice as likely to die by age 10 because of accidental injury. Adults with ADHD are five times more likely than others to die by age 45 as a result of accidental injury, suicide, homicide. And then my own study from two years ago shows that adults with ADHD that go untreated have a shortened life expectancy of about 13 years. That may not sound like much to you. That is worse than all the major killers combined that we worry about, from smoking to alcohol to exercise to sleep. None of them by themselves even comes close to that number in terms of what it does for life expectancy. And the reason that ADHD is so bad is that ADHD predisposes to all of those other things that we just talked about that can have an adverse effect on, on lifespan. So, you know, when, when you see all of that and you pull that all together, it's very sobering uh, to, to think that people just pass off ADHD as trivial or a myth or not worth looking for in their primary care practice. When in fact, it's, you know, to me, it's the big gorilla in the room that you need to be paying attention to. So, you know, long story short, I think the health consequences of ADHD are getting their just due finally. And, and hopefully we'll get primary care to begin to take it as seriously as they did depression and anxiety, which they now routinely screen for and manage within primary mm -hmm. care and feel comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. but don't feel that way uh, about this. So those are some of the major avenues of research that have been going on. I could talk about others, but those yeah, are the no, impressive to that. me. And I, and as you were saying all of that, I was getting goosebumps and I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I see it <clears throat> yep, in some yeah. of my clients too. You know, when people seek out coaching, it's, I always want to say, what, what are we coaching for? And if there's deeper right. fundamental stuff, it's not about coaching, it's about proper treatment. And then we get you in the right path. So, and like eating disorder yeah. and, and the, the, the female stuff and the hormones and all right. of that stuff. And actually for me, what sure. part of the reason for my diagnosis was having a child at the age of 40 and that really mm -hmm. my hormones and everything was just like, set me over there. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it can. I mean, there's a great article that Ellen Littman and her colleagues just published in my newsletter in August, which reviews the, the small but growing body of evidence on the impact of hormonal changes on women's ADHD and the fact that women with ADHD have more premenstrual tension symptoms, have more postpartum depression, have more perimenopausal symptoms than do typical women. And in addition to that, we know that women seem to have a two-phase onset. Girls can have an onset of ADHD in childhood like the boys do, but a good percentage of them don't. They sort of go under the radar as subclinical until they get to puberty. And then that provokes them to move from the subclinical into the clinical range. So we have this second wave of onset for women, which seems to help explain why ADHD is three times more common in boys, but by the time we get to adulthood, it's not even one and a half times more common in males. It's almost a dead split. Mm. So something is happening to women during their development where they catch up to men in the prevalence of ADHD, but not initially. And I think the, the hormones and puberty and other things are one piece of that puzzle. Fascinating. 
Doc, you said something and I, 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 of course I'm going to forget, but the gist of it was the, the, how life impacting this could be if it's not managed. And I'm just going to kind of go out of uh, order of our questions for a second. Uh -huh. There's this theme that I see on social media these days. And I am also, as a coach, I always say strength-based coaching, let's focus on that. Yeah. But there, there's the superpower side of it, if you will, that if you tap yeah. into it properly, if you know how, what to do with it, you can make the most of it. And then there's this other heavy side of it. So I don't want to glorify that it's this, you know, superpower thing we have. I'm curious about your opinion on that, because it does some days, yep. it's very debilitating to have this. Well, you know, this this is a fine line that I walk, and I, I certainly have been accused uh, of, of over-pathologizing the disorder. But on the other hand, you know, that's why we do clinical research. We don't exactly. do it to discover how great you are, uh, because nobody cares about that in, in the research community. Instead, we want to know what makes this a disorder. Disorders are disorders because they lead to harm to individuals. The excessive level of symptoms, the persistence of symptoms reach such a degree that it poses risk to the individual, it creates suffering. And so we go out and we try to study that. And along the way, we may discover a few odds and ends that are kind of you know, quirky features. I won't call them gifts, but un unusual characteristics. But you know, the lion's share of our findings, you come down on this being a legitimate disorder that deserves to be recognized and to have entitlements and accommodations and medications. And you're not going to get that if you run down the halls of Congress screaming what a gift you have, exactly. because at that point, people are going to say, then you don't need anything. You know, we're, we're, why should we accommodate you? Why should you be you know, entitled to medications and support and social security disability and IDEA and 504 and all these things that we have fought so hard to get for people with ADHD, and you can ruin that if you take this other, this sort of neurodiversity approach to the extreme and say, we don't need any treatment, we're just different thinkers. And mm -hmm. you have to respect our diversity. Well, speak for yourself, my friend, but let me tell you, there's a lot of people out there who suffer and die, like my twin brother, from this particular condition. Mm -hmm. So, But on the other hand, where it's properly managed, and you find an appropriate niche, and you have a supportive family environment, and you capitalize on your talents and aptitudes by accessing community resources, as I describe in the book, the four keys of success are those, uh, well, then you can easily prosper, particularly in non-traditional fields like entrepreneur or, you know, videographer or, you know, TV producer or actor or stand-up comedian or, you know, performing artists like, you know, I could just list off people like, you know, Adam Levine and Justin Timberlake, or we could get into athletics like Simone Biles and Bubba Watson and, you know, others like that. Or we could move over, you know, into stand-up comedy and talk about people like Howie Mandel and others or move into the entrepreneurs like the owner of JetBlue or Richard Branson. And I mean, just Google ADHD success stories and you see how people can thrive when they get diagnosed and managed and they have a supportive environment that allows them to pursue non-traditional aptitudes. That's so to it. me, there's a lot of qualifications in this ADHD superpower stuff I because it. by itself, without treatment, without diagnosis, this is no superpower. Absolutely. This is life-threatening, yeah. but get it under control. And to me, there's, there's no end to the stuff that you could do when you have this properly managed. And, and I think that's the message I like to see, particularly among people 
who bring unusual talent. You, you're not a gifted musician because you're ADHD. You're not a gifted comedian for that. Th those gifts come from other genetic and family and environmental sources, but that you can capitalize on those because of your energy and your propensity for you know, hyper-focusing under some circumstances. And the fact that you can be to some extent in unusual settings, more creative than other people. That, that's not across the board. People with ADHD are not more creative than others, but that's right. under certain circumstances, they are. And so learning what those are and, and the gift that you can bring to that is, is the kind of thing I think walks the, walks the fine line, balances the non-traditional aptitudes I bring along with my ADHD, plus the management and the diagnosis uh, and the owning it. I love Adam Levine's video on YouTube. You got to own this before we can do anything about it. And you can't own it if you keep buying into the superpower gift neurodiverse idea that there's nothing wrong with me, it's the rest of humanity. Yes, That's the thank problem. you for saying uh, that. Oof, keep going on right. that one. <laughs> yeah, well, I hear it in the autism community. I have a yes. grandchild on the spectrum and it just galls me to no end to hear these really high-functioning gifted people who are barely qualify as high-functioning autism if they do at all you know saying that this is just a neurodiverse approach to to the mind and to reality and we don't need a label we don't need treatment mm. we just need to be respected at the table for the diversity well great if you've got an iq of 130 and you're a little shy and you don't look at people in the eye you know, may, maybe that's true, but if you're talking about traditional autism of the moderate to severe form, you're not talking about that at all. These people are in great need of diagnosis, evaluation, assistance, because 90% of them will never work or leave home. Exactly. So, and, and we need to do something about that. So as I tell my neurodiverse colleagues, you don't speak for everybody, speak for yourself. So. Doctor. <laughs> I want to take a moment. Sorry, you got me on a rant. <laughs> no, I love your rant because I am where yeah. I am there now. A few years ago, it was, I mean, the, the name of this podcast is Proudly ADHD because when I yeah. came, came, you know, public with it, I'm like, you know, I'm proud of it. It is what it is because I've done some amazing things in my life. Didn't know that I yes. was ADHD. But right. then as, as I got to know more and be in the field and coach clients, there are some of my clients that are truly suffering and they don't yeah. see it as a gift because there's some work that needs to be done. So for me, yeah. it's, and it's not a us and them. It's not a neurotypical versus neurodivergent. And mm. like, we're all human beings trying to make the most right. of this one life. I, I mean, so, we're all you know, neurodiverse. Right? Exactly. So, so, so the division yeah. sometimes it, it bugs me a little bit too. And that language. So everything you just said, I humbly agree. And I thank you for giving that perspective to it. I, I, I am exactly yeah. where you are now with that. So on that note, though, let, let's go deeper a little bit into your book and into you have a chapter. There's a section you talk about the, the three types of diagnosis, the predominantly hyperactive or present representation, rather right. predominantly hyperactive, inattentive combined. And then you threw in this new one that I see here, the mm -hmm. slug yes. sluggish cognitive tempo. And right, I was right. like, yes, yeah. tell me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about this. Back in the day when we called this ADD with and without hyperactivity, we did a lot of research. This would be back in the late 80s through the 90s, comparing these groups. And it turned out that they weren't worth comparing because 
they both pretty much had the same disorder. It just depended on when in life you saw them, what time you know, of, of the week or month it was. Uh, and people were moving across these types. And so we said, there are no types. Let's get rid of that. It's ADHD is one thing. Uh, and then we moved into the presentations in 2013 with the DSM-5. And the only reason we called it presentations was just to say that on this day in my clinic, you show this profile. Now, I could see you in a year and you could have the reverse profile. Yes. There's nothing static, stable about it. It's all one disorder that varies in severity of its dimensions, depending upon stage of life and your development. So people can go across all three presentations as a function of just growing up. So people need to understand there aren't three kinds of ADHD. Every time I see that in my news feed at some popular trade media website, it's like, oh, here we go again. There's one ADHD, but it can vary. So for instance, women tend to have more of the inattention, less of the hyperactivity. Men tend to have more of the disruptive, impulsive, hyperactive, and to some extent aggression, but that's relative. I mean, that's as a group, you can find women who are as hyperactive as the men and vice versa. But, but the point is it changes. So we have one disorder in the human population that's controlled largely by genetics, and that's what we're facing. Now, somewhere in that research, we discovered a subset of people who were not impulsive, not hyperactive, had no whiff of self-regulation problems at all, ever in life, but who were highly inattentive. And when we studied those people in detail, as we've been doing now for the last 20 years, we discovered that the nature of their inattention was markedly different than the problems we see in ADHD. So for instance, in SCT, the sluggish cognitive tempo, which by the way, we dislike the term, we are going to change it this fall. I'm on a work group of the world's leading researchers that's writing a complete review of the literature of what we know. And as part of that, we will rename the disorder because it's very demeaning. It's pejorative. It implies Which one? The, the sluggish cognitive, the sluggish tempo? cognitive okay. tempo is okay. not a happy camper to me. Oh, I know. It's not a good, and I don't like it. I haven't liked it for decades. I've been writing against it. I, I like the idea that we're splitting off a new attention disorder. That's very exciting, but we need to rename it. And we, we've narrowed it down to a couple of names. We'll be voting on that in the next week or so or two weeks, and then we'll finish the review and it'll be out by the end. In the meantime, you can read a, a review up through 2017 on my website under the fact sheets directory if you want to know more about SCT. So what is SCT? It's a problem of staring, daydreaming, being disconnected from your environment. So you're this sort of absent-minded, head in the air, space cadet who's easily confused because you're not monitoring the world around you, the external world, you're more decoupled from it and you're, you're in your own head too much. So there's a lot of mind wandering, mind blanking, daydreaming that's going on in there that is preventing you from interacting appropriately with the environment around you. And when the environment tries to bring you back, that's where we see the mental confusion. So it's like a kid who stares and his mother goes, Steve, Steve, and Steve shakes his head, what? Yes. And, and Steve has now missed everything that's gone on for the last 20 minutes because of all of this maladaptive, mind-wandering, daydreaming, blanking, and whatever that's going on in there. We still don't know the nature of all of what's happening in that mental arena. What we do know is that the individual has decoupled and disengaged from the environment. Mm. And that is not what people with ADHD do. If anything, people with ADHD are overly coupled to the now to the events around them and are not 
properly coupled or being guided by mental representations about goals, plans, promises, time, the future. That's all what's going on in the executive brain and our working memory. And those representations aren't guiding you. Having ADHD is a lot like being an old man like I am, where you're losing your working memory. And Mm -hmm. I literally can get up and go into the next room to do something, cross the threshold and forgot what I went into that room to do. So, you know, there's a huge working memory deficit in ADHD that we do not see at all in SCT. So I like to think of them this way, and it oversimplifies it. People with with ADHD are overly coupled to the environment and the now. Whatever's happening around them is capturing them to the exclusion of plans, goals, lists, commitments, agreements. And so ADHD is really a problem with future-directed attention and persistence. SCT is more of a problem with decoupling from this environment, not monitoring it very well, and becoming overly engaged with mental content. And that's where we get the mind wandering and the daydreaming going on. Now, you can have both. As my national survey showed eight years ago, half of people with ADHD have SCT and half don't. And But when they go together, it is doubly impairing in the individual's life. Because now they're vacillating between, that's right. I mean, they're going between the two extremes of these attention deficits. So they're not mutually exclusive, even though half of people with one don't have the other, half of them do. But it's a very impairing disorder in its own right. It, It markedly increases the risk for depression and anxiety. It carries no risk for drug abuse, addiction, criminal behavior, antisocial behavior, all the risk taking tracks with ADHD Whereas what we see with this is more rumination, depression, internal preoccupation, disengagement from the world around you. Uh, So yeah, both are attention disorders, but of a markedly different quality. Just not to, like we could talk about this one for a whole hour, but- Oh yes, um, yes we could. From a treatment (laughs) perspective, what what have you seen to be helpful for, for these folks? Yes. Well, for SCT, we, we don't have a lot of treatment. I could count the studies on one hand. Oh. So we, we've got one study of children showing that maybe Stratera is better. And a second study that shows that SCT predicts a poor response to methylphenidate in children. In other words, it, it has almost the opposite effect. On the other hand, there's a study just published three weeks ago by Len Adler out of New York showing that at least for adults who have ADHD, That's the qualifier. They have ADHD, but if they have SCT on top of it, then stimulants like Vyvanse and others do seem to help them manage both attention problems. So uh, to me, it depends on whether they're comorbid or not. If you just have SCT, probably the stimulants aren't going to be very good for you. And a norepinephrine or another drug, even a serotonergic drug might be better. On the other hand, if you do have ADHD with SCT, maybe you'll get a little bit more usefulness of the stimulants than somebody with SCT alone. But barring that, we don't know what else works for these people. I happen to think that cognitive therapy might be even better for them than it is for ADHD. I happen to think that mindfulness training might be better for them, even though it does help people with ADHD. You know, it does help you to regulate your mind, which is part of the problem with SCT. But frankly, we don't know. Yeah. It's, it's that new a disorder at this point and in I, time. And I find with coaching, I even change my style of coaching. I become even more hands-on yeah. with them, more frequent touch bases to just kind of get them going. Yes. What are we doing today? Which is not the traditional coaching that, you know, we're trained no. to do. We have to modify right. it for them. Yeah. 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 
Amazing. So I think people need to understand there's two attention disorders and this is the other one. Unfortunately, the DSM-5 only has one attention disorder and everybody gets dropped into that one. And these people get misdiagnosed as ADHD, often inattentive presentation, or they get called ADD by the clinician, but there is no such thing as ADD. We got rid of that term in the 1980s. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrendous situation for the people with SCT because we don't have an official diagnosis. You're not gonna get paid if you use that diagnosis, if you're a clinician. We don't know how to manage it at this point. We're really still doing a deep dive into the weeds of what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. What's going on in the mind? And what might work for these people? Hence yeah, and they, it goes back to our initial conversation too about the, these folks will not call it a superpower because they're stuck. Like they're, they're in no. the muds and it's to them, they That's get right. more, more frustrated. It's like, what are you talking about? Strength based and superpower I'm right. suffering here. Yeah. So I, I absolutely yeah. get that. And it's important to talk about that so that we're not, you know, glamorizing this thing where there are mm-hmm. folks like this. I want to go into another chapter and talk about, I'm going to bring up a couple of things and you tell me which way you want to go. There's, okay. There's poor emotional emotional self-regulation. Yeah, oh, that's a big one. Yeah, Yeah. so what Mm. inspired you to change that title? In the the the, problem areas you had there. Right, well, the, what we wanted to do was to focus on with ADHD, there's a two pronged problem with emotions in ADHD that makes it different from a mood disorder like bipolar or depression. Number one, people with ADHD show emotions very impulsively. That's just part of the disinhibition that comes with the disorder. The emotions they're showing are not weird or in any way pathological. They're just showing them too quickly. They can't seem to restrain themselves so that when something happened that provokes them, it would have provoked a typical person too, but the typical person would have quashed it, would not have shown it, would have then engaged in self-calming, self-soothing, moderated Let's make it more socially acceptable. You know, just because your boss, you know, disrespected you is no reason to grab his tie. You know, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where the emotion is up, out, and expressed without regard to your welfare and your ability to socially moderate this through self-control. So the two-pronged problem then is emotions are coming too impulsively and too quickly. And even though they're rational and they're understandable, They're raw, they're immature, they're poorly regulated. The second problem is once the strong emotion has been elicited, people with ADHD find it harder to get control over it. That's a self-regulation problem and that's step two. And so they've got both problems going on. Emotions are coming very quickly. And if they're extreme, I find it hard to manage it, hard to control it as well as my colleagues do. And so learning how to deal with that or taking medication to try to manage that becomes very important. But all of that said, that's not a mood disorder. That's not an anxiety disorder. That's not bipolar. Mm. That's not borderline. And it certainly isn't this new rejection sensitivity disorder that some clinician invented, which does not exist in the official taxonomy and for which there is almost no evidence because you're basically taking this self-regulation problem we already know about and have a lot of research on 
and you've simply relabeled it as rejection sensitivity. Thank well, you. that does a disservice because these emotions go beyond just being rejected. Exactly. People have trouble with emotions even when there's nobody in the room. If they engage in a frustrating event that, that's anger-inducing to them, I, I remember interviewing a weightlifter who locked his keys in the car and within 20 minutes had torn the door off the car. Yep. Now, there was nobody around. There's no mm -hmm. rejection sensitivity mm -hmm. going on. What you have is this impatience, low frustration tolerance, quickness to anger, and reactive aggression. And that goes with the, with the ADHD part of it. So whereas a mood disorder, on the other hand, the, the moods are not provoked. They're long-lasting, hours, days, weeks. They're cross-situational. They're not rational. People around you don't know why you're manic or why you've been depressed for the last two weeks. And they're often extreme. Yes. Uh, and that's not the case with ADHD. So, you know, I teach clinicians, that's your checklist for whether it's ADHD or whether I need to go shopping for a mood disorder to account for what's going on. Mm. Uh, but if it's more the impulsiveness of the emotions and the difficulties getting control over them, that's ADHD. Doc, where have you been all my life? <laughs> oh, this is so good. But the problem is, you know, uh, Kathy, if I could just interrupt for a yes. moment, is none of what I just said is in the DSM or in oh, most no. of the trade books on ADHD or is known by by many clinicians. And so, you know, mm -hmm. the clinician hears all about this drama going on in your life and he goes, well, I, that's not ADHD. There's something else going on here. So you get a diagnosis of borderline personality or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're kind of a mild hypomanic or bipolar or, you know, the clinician's grasping to try to label that emotional difficulty when it didn't need any label at all. It just comes with the disorder of ADHD. Thank you. And yeah. there's my case in point, because I wanted to do an <laughs> episode on RSD and how I don't buy into it. And now you've heard yeah. it from Dr. Barkley himself. So thank you very much. Yeah. I didn't have to explain it. He did it better than me. <laughs> thank you. Well, and if that. it's truly rejection sensitivity, the disorder that captures that, which we already have, is borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel. But the emotional reactions of people with ADHD beyond rejection <clears throat> and include non-social circumstances. I mean, road rage, for instance, is commonplace in ADHD adults, particularly males. And so they'll be out driving. And if somebody does something they don't like or doesn't do something they want them to do, they can become very aggressive with a motor vehicle and, and consequently contribute to, to crash risk. You know, that's not rejection sensitivity disorder. That's road rage. But it fits with the impulsive emotions and low frustration tolerance that is so characteristic of adults with the condition. Yeah. Agreed. We're, we're almost close to the end and I don't want it to end. because I'm like, No. Oh, but a couple of things. I, before I get into medication, I do want to like, you know, we're, we're, we're unpacking this amazing book. It's like a user's manual for ADHD because honestly, folks, you got to read the book. Like I said, I've studied it through and through. And now the second edition, the doctor goes in depth in all of these. And, and he really, the way he segmented the book in the different section is also really beneficial because it, it helps my brain kind of compartmentalize the information. Yeah. There's a section around self-acceptance, self-awareness, all of that good jazz. You know, it, it's one right. thing that we can go by these labels and be like, oh, it's RSD. Oh, it's this. But then it, I like how you're like, park it all. Now what do you want to do about it? It is what right. it is. That's right. 
That's right. So why did you bring self-awareness into this new edition? I, I brought it in for, for two reasons. First of all, it, it, there's kind of two separate tracks there that I talk about in the book. The first one is the self-awareness, self-monitoring. People with ADHD, but one of the jobs of your frontal lobe and your executive brain is to monitor what you're doing while you're doing it, track your progress, see how well you're progressing toward the goals you're holding in mind. What some developmental people call metacognition, I'm aware that I'm aware of what I'm doing. And that's very important because it helps you to stay on task. It helps you to track your progress. It helps you to get back on task when you've gotten off task due to distraction or some variation around you because you're holding in mind what you were doing, you're tracking what you're doing, you know you're not doing it, you get yourself back on course again. Mm -hmm. That's part of your executive brain. People with ADHD struggle with that. They don't monitor themselves as well. So they're not as aware that they're off task as early as other people would be, or that their behavior is excessive for the situation, or that they've interrupted other people for the fifth time, or that they can't seem to get to the point in a cocktail conversation. And you know the person they're talking to is glazing over, mm -hmm. almost becoming SCT, <laughs> so to speak, in that. So yeah, that to me is the self-monitoring problem. And it can lead people with ADHD to not realizing that they're getting into as much difficulty as they are with their behavior. Mm -hmm. And it leads them to sometimes conclude that there's not a problem or that it's not as bad as my partner or spouse or boss or neighbor says it really is. When in fact, they're right and you're just not as aware of these issues and, and difficulties. And the reason I brought that into the book is it's very hard to treat somebody who doesn't think they have a problem or that the problem is as great as the people around Amen. them are trying to convince them that it is. Uh, because you won't engage the system if you don't feel that there's a difficulty there. So, you know, there's a lot that goes along with that self-awareness deficit that people need to I think spend some time on. And we teach people, as you, as you do as a coach, various ways to try to compensate for that. So make yourself accountable to others for the goal. Let them be monitoring you. Make yourself accountable to your coach or a colleague or a mentor or somebody or, or a partner with the goals that you've set for yourself. Use little vibrating watches or the motivator device that pings you on a random basis. And that ping is a cue are you on task? Are you aware of what mm -hmm. you're doing? Have you drifted? Has your mind gone elsewhere? So use some technology around you to try to do that. Meet with people periodically and, and just ask them, so how do you think I'm doing? You know, the old Mayor Koch, remember when Ed Koch ran for mayor of New York City? You're too young to recall that, but his campaign slogan was, how am I doing? How am I doing? You need to be inviting the loved ones in your life to giving you more frequent feedback nice. and be open to it. So there are various strategies you can use to get around that. And then of course the medication greatly expands one's self-awareness and, and self-tracking. Then there is the second prong of, of that issue in the new book, which is the idea of, all right, I'm aware, I have these issues, I need to do something about it. The next step is the one we already said, own it. Don't dismiss it, don't minimize it, don't avoid it, don't reject it, don't deny it, own it. Because once you've owned it, the next thing is, so what? Right. We all have our deficits, difficulties, lack of aptitude, and just own it. Because now, once I've owned it, it's part of me, it's part of who I am, let's get on with, all right, what can I do about it? 
how can I be the best person I can be knowing that this is part of who I am? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like me acknowledging that I'm colorblind and bald and developing a left facial weakness as I get into my 70s now. And, you know, I have a virtually zero mechanical spatial ability. You don't want to see me hang wallpaper uh, <laughs> or repair something. You know, so what? That's me, right? Exactly. So let, let's just get on with this. So I talk about that in the book, that the, the need for ownership to be step one after diagnosis. So good. So, 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 so good. And thank you. It, yeah. It's really important to bring that up. But I always say that I have this thing about, you know, you become aware of it, you accept it, and then you start making conscious choices. And those conscious yes. choices are about like, you know, okay, I see what's happening here. Really be in that choice. What do you want to do? And no blaming, no us and them. Right. It's just what, what is in within your control to do. So I love that. That's right. Um, yeah. Before we wrap up, I have two questions and let me know if we should just move to the wrap up question. I, I <laughs> want to talk about a little bit of medication or. Sure. Okay, in the new, there's, you talk about what's on the horizon, there's a paragraph and you have this, this thing yeah. about for children. Do we want to talk about that or is it a different medication conversation? Well, I mean, we can talk about either children or adults. I mean, there, there's the three major medications that are out there. There's the stimulant, which we've had for decades. That's your methylphenidate, Ritalin, and your amphetamine, like Adderall, Vyvanse. And then there's the norepinephrine drugs, which we call the non-stimulants. And you know, the one that came out in 2003 was Stratera, that's amoxetine. But there's one that just came out a couple of months ago, which is a competitor called Kilbray. And it's only approved for kids, but I expect it will be approved for adults eventually. It's really not all that different from Stratera, except that we may be able to titrate it a little quicker because it's more specific to norepinephrine than even Stratera is. So there are these minor differences between those. Then when we get into the antihypertensive drugs, what are called alpha-2 drugs, that used to be used to treat blood pressure, but have been reformulated uh, into long-acting variations to treat ADHD. And those are the chemicals clonidine and guanfacine, which you know are 10x, Capve, and I forget the other one. But so, so you've got those three medications out there. The, the exciting news is really on delivery systems, where you know how you get the drug into the body and keep it there. And as I chart in my book, you know, we've got pills, those are immediate release. We've got the pellets, which are time release capsules like Focalin and Adderall XR. We've got the patch, which is Daytrana that you can wear and absorb your drug through your skin. That's for methylphenidate. We've got the pump, which is Concerta. It's an osmotic pump you swallow that squeezes out Ritalin like a toothpaste tube. And then we have Journey PM, which came out a year ago. And Journey is uh, actually almost two years ago now. Journey, you take at night and it releases nine hours later. So parents don't have to worry about waking the kid up early to get the medicine in. Otherwise, you know, the house is gonna be hell on wheels for that yes. first hour. So Journey was invented to cover the early morning functioning uh, of children, but as it turns out, and I think the company may eventually go for an adult indication, there are, because of the delay in the daily rhythm of adults with ADHD that their ADHD produces, people with ADHD don't reach their peak arousal until about three to five hours after typical people do, mm -hmm. which means that their peak period of alertness is gonna be late morning into afternoon and possibly evening, whereas the typical person, it's gonna be mid morning to late morning and then a declining after that. So it may be that a drug like Journey could help adults with ADHD 
with this early morning waking that they have problems with. So for them, it's not that they have a raging ADHD child that they got to get off to school and, and get them on medication. It's that they can't get started. They yep. can't get out of bed. They can't launch the day. They can't get to work on time. And so, you know, it may be beneficial for that, particularly if they're unable to change their workflow and their work time into a later part of the day when they are more likely to be mm-hmm. alert, productive, and, and so on. So that's what's going on in, the, in the, the drug space right now. And we're hoping that maybe genetics will reveal to us some brain mechanisms that will then lead us to new drugs that would be more targeted for ADHD than the ones we have. That's the hope anyway from, from genetics. But in the meantime, that's kind of what we have right now are those three types of drugs and many, many different delivery systems from gummies to liquids to mm-hmm. patches to pills, pellets, pumps, pro-drugs, everything. It's, it's all out there, but there's only three kinds of drugs. Amazing. And in your book, again, yeah. you go in depth through all of that, which is like, I'm telling you people, this book is like, an encyclopedia package up. <laughs> Doctor, uh, last question to wrap up, and I appreciate your sure. time. In this field that you've been for many, 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 many years, what's been your yeah. evolution, your approach in, into treatment? Where did you start yeah. and where are you now? What have you seen in, in, in the way you're doing it? Well, you know, I kind of followed the history of of the field itself. When I came in in the 70s, it was all about hyperactivity and distractibility and and trying to measure that in the lab and so on. So we had all these tests and measures and videos and things that we were doing. And so, you know, it was really just a disruptive behavior problem characterized by those those dimensions. And then we began to, to look behind the curtain, so to speak, and realize that those were just surface features. There was a lot more going on in the mind than just that. So for instance, I did studies on sense of time and the ability to track and measure and use time in your life and showed that ADHD is the worst psychiatric disorder you can have and have to deal with time in your life. It is the time management disorder. And so, you know, that led us down a path of, okay, so why is that? And then we started getting into, well, that's related to executive functioning in the brain. And all right, so what are the executive functions. And that was a real dog's breakfast out there in the field because the field of executive functioning hasn't progressed much at all Mm -hmm. over the last 40 years. Part of it's because we have too many definitions, too many measures, not enough operational thinking. So I went out and I wrote two books on the subject of executive functioning and developed a theory of what is executive functioning and how does it develop and what does it mean for people who don't have it, like people with ADHD. And so that us into you know the seven executive functions that I talked with you about. And of course, what does that lead to? Well, the executive functions are indispensable for human self-control, self-regulation, self-governance. So that opened up another area of, well, if that's the case, we should be seeing lots of areas of life where self-regulation is indispensable and people with ADHD should be struggling in it. And that led into the health domain and the wellness domain and the nutrition and mm-hmm. the money management and the driving and raising your children. There is no domain of life in which self-regulation does not play some role. And it helped explain to me, as I've grown up with this disorder, why ADHD went from being a trivial disorder of kids moving too much to this pervasive self-regulation disorder that affects virtually every aspect of life and can be a very impairing disorder in people where if it's not being managed. And so that's kind of the evolution of my thinking. 
and and where things have gone now. And to me, that that's been a real eye opener that we've gone from attention deficit to self regulation disorder. Amazing. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for this marathon of a conversation. <laughs> you covered so much. I appreciate your time, doctor. We tried. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Folks, till next time, be sure to pick up the new edition of Taking Charge of Adult ADHD, second edition. And you can Google Dr. Russell Barkley and you'll see him everywhere. So thank you again, doctor, for your time. We appreciate you so much. Welcome. Thank you. And thanks so much, Kathy. I deeply appreciate it. Be well. Absolutely. Have a great day, Doc. Bye. Right. Bye-bye.